With 350 to 450 billion dollars lost to productivity in US in the US alone due to disengaged employees, having a great workplace is a real strong strategic advantage as many companies are finding out. You're listening to the Insight to Action podcast. My name is Donna Jones. In this episode, I'm talking to the co-founder of Menlo Innovations. In the spring of 2016, Rich Sheridan went to Boston and spoke to Agile Executives New England, which is run by a colleague of mine, Nancy Van Schundewert, and I promised I'd practice her last name. So there you have it. (laughs) Someone in Vistaprint was in the audience and was so inspired by the talk, she inspired her company to visit Menlo Innovations in Silicon Valley and learn what it means to be an agile company. So in this episode, I'm speaking with Rich Sheridan, who's the author of Joy, Inc., and the next episode, you'll hear from Vistaprint on what happened in that story. Now, Rich Sheridan is the founder of Menlo Innovations, a company that designs and builds custom software, which sounds pretty ordinary until you hear their purpose. Their purpose, their mission as an organization, which in this case is a form of purpose, is to end human suffering in the world as it relates to technology. I love that. I, I, I actually love big missions because uh, ending human suffering in the world that are technology, sourced in technology, is, is um, that's a mission, a big one. So culture, in this case, we're talking about culture in the workplace and the environment has a serious advantage in a really highly cluttered software dev industry. So it's how Menlo does their work, the spirit brought to the everyday that makes a huge difference. Rich, first of all, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Uh, it's great to be here. I'm going to make one small adjustment to your introduction, as tempting as it would be to say we're in the heart of Silicon Valley because of our name. We are actually in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and we named our company after the Menlo Park, New Jersey lab of Thomas Edison. I must have done a word association there. Rich, what would a company like Vistaprint learn from walking through the door of Menlo Innovations? Yeah, I think any of our visitors, and we had almost 4,000 visitors from all over the world last year, Vistaprint being probably about 25 of those visitors of the 4,000 that came through our doors last year, they're all looking, I think, for something similar. They're looking for what it takes to create an intentionally joyful culture. And they're coming here for some practical lessons. They walk through our door and they're seeing a living, breathing, experimenting culture. This isn't a consulting organization per se, although we love to talk about our culture and teach it to others. But this is a living, breathing organism, a a company you can come in and, and somewhat rare in our industry, peer into the very nature of how we do what we do, why we do it the way we do it, how it all works together. And they came here for a living, breathing example. What inspired the creation of that tone for the workplace? Earlier today, I was talking to someone about living systems, you know, thinking as part of the living system, companies thinking as part of the living system, which it sounds like you, you've nailed. Tell us a bit more about the, the evolution, the journey, how you got there. Yeah, for me, this is very personal and perhaps even personally selfish. I created the company that I want to go to every day. And it's largely because there was a midpoint in my career, about a dozen years, where I literally didn't want to go to work every day. I was one of the disengaged. I was taking the longest possible drives to work. I was turning my screen away from the door and playing freestyle half of my day. And quite frankly, I was one of the top 
recognized performers in the organization. I just didn't want to be there anymore. And then by my late thirties, I was scared because I didn't know what I was going to do the rest of my days. I knew I couldn't do this anymore. I knew I couldn't do it for another 30 years. And so I was determined to find a better way of doing things than was customary. And so how did that come about? What, what, because you, you don't go from, I'm in a place where I'm going crazy to starting up something the way you did. What was the what was the adapting bit in between? I'm an eternal optimist. My team knows this about me. You put me in a room full of manure. I will keep digging till I find the pony. And my journey out led me to authors and books. And the books that I was drawn to were not books on technology because, quite frankly, technological challenges pale in comparison to how do you create effective human teams. So the books I was drawn to were books on organizational design and development, books like Peter Senge's book, The Fifth Discipline, on the art and practice of learning organization, Tom Peters' book, In Search of Excellence, some of Peter Drucker's books on management. These books were all telling me there was, in fact, a way out, a better way of doing things was customary. My job was to figure it out. And in 1999, when I was a VP of R&D, for a tired old public company, I had a quick moment when I read a book by a guy named Kent Beck and saw a video on an industrial design firm in California called IDEO. And right then and there, I knew exactly where I was going. And that's kind of where it all started for me was when I was a VP at a tired old public company. So that's fantastic because it's the classic case where you're sitting someplace, you know where you don't want to be, and you can always move away from that. But in your case, you moved away from what you don't want to be towards something you wanted. How did your vision evolve as as you kept putting these ideas together and adding them to the soup, so to speak? Yeah, at first, I will say some of the ideas I had were fairly simple, fairly straightforward, and I thought they would help me solve some very practical issues I was having with my team. And they did. But there was this cascade that began to occur that actually went past the practical issues I was trying to solve and started branching in areas that, quite frankly, I thought were unsolvable problems, and those unsolvable problems began to melt away. And in that moment, I realized I'm onto something here. There's something bigger than I had pictured with what I was seeing, and I just kept pursuing it and running experiments, uh, it's a very famous phrase here now at Menlo. I didn't use it so much back then, but that's in fact what we were doing was just running a series of small experiments to see what worked, do more of what worked, do less of what didn't, and kind of a daily, almost moment-by-moment evolution uh, over a couple of years when I was VP of that tired old public company, and literally within six months began a serious transformation of that company, and I might still be there to this day if the internet bubble hadn't burst in 2001 and everything was taken away from me. And in that moment, they could take everything away from me except for what I had learned in those two years. And that was really the basis for founding Menlo Innovations in 2001. How did that change, that whole experience change you? Like, you know, in terms of navigating these kinds of uncertainty, because people typically freak out if they're going to go from what they feel secure and comfortable in, it's nice I've got financial, I know my check's coming in and all that. And then you jump from that environment to what you what you did. What did you notice it called forth in you? Number one, what I realized, and it was kind of a moment for me, 
was that I wasn't running towards risk. I was running away from risk. I crossed a bridge in my mind where I realized that safety was not in what was my current environment. I was running away from my current environment. That's where the danger lay because it wasn't the danger of losing a paycheck or losing a job or, or you know, uh, suffering some reputational loss inside the company. What was at risk was me, my love for what I did as a profession. This was a profession I dearly loved to be in, but it was betraying me. And I realized in this moment that running away from my current situation was actually a run towards safety, not towards risk. And I tell people now everywhere I go that when you make a decision like that in your mind, you begin racing towards change. Yeah, because you're very much, I mean, I made that point specifically because I see people that know they want to move away from something, but they, they're not clear on where they're going to. And so you can keep moving away from what you don't like and never really have a clear clear sense of direction coming out of it. Yeah, and, and I think there's a wiring inside of me that when I'm searching, and I was searching for those dozen years, I was looking hard. I didn't know even what I was looking for, but I was determined to find it. And so all of these books I was reading were giving me a sense of an inspiration, a hope, if you will, that there was, in fact, a better way of doing things. I just didn't know what it was. And it wasn't until I read Kent Beck's book and saw the IDEO video that suddenly it like all crystallized in my mind so, so clearly and visibly that now I, I knew I would know it when I got there. And within six months, I was there and I've never looked back since. And that was almost 17 years ago now. Wow. So Menlo Innovations is 17 years old. Yeah, it's 15 years old. We started with four people. Uh, the two years before that is where I throw in those extra couple of years where I was VP of R&D at a company called Interface Systems. And that's really where a lot of these thoughts got to gel uh, inside that tired old public company. And then when I started Menlo uh, with my co-founders, uh, we knew we already had a picture. We had a very exact picture in our mind of what we wanted to create based on those two years of experience. How did you go about doing it then? Uh, the startup? Yeah, yeah. I got the business value of joy, high-tech anthropology, which we'll have to, we need to talk about, find out what, what is that. It sounds fantastic. So let's talk about that. But but how did you go about putting it into place? Because it's taking something from concept and putting it into reality. There's, it's sometimes easier to do one over the other. How did it, how did it flow out? Well, I, I think I mean, Barry Maltz wrote a book on entrepreneurship, said you have to be a little crazy to be an entrepreneur. And I think for us, we, we fundamentally believe, based on our two years of experience at Interface, and these were guys that helped me do that uh, back at Interface Systems, my co-founders, and so we had seen it work. We had seen it work once. So there was a, if you will, a confidence going into this. Now, of course, you've got a whole new business you're going to start, and it's going to be a different kind of business than what we came out of. But we had such fundamentally good success with these practices. And what was interesting was the tours that we do today had already begun back at Interface Systems. We were already having the likes of IBM and CompuWare and Bell and & Howell and Microsoft come visit what I created in Interface Systems. So we could already see that there was this uptake in the world for what we were doing. And when the business began, when Menlo Innovation started, we started it right here in a town I'd been working in for, well, at that point, about uh, 20 years, a little bit more than 20 years. So I, had a, I and my co-founders had a pretty strong reputation in the Ann Arbor region. And so when we started Menlo, we kind of, we had uh, a lot of built-in network 
around us based on all the people we had worked with. And we were intriguing to this community and they started flocking to us. We, we kind of had un, an unnatural start for a startup company. We had a lot of people that were directly interested in what we were doing because they'd already caught wind of it from what I had been doing at Interface Systems. Now, when you say it, what's it? What's the secret sauce inside Mentalino <laughs> Innovations? <laughs> yeah, so yeah, no, it's a great question. It is the culture. The culture and the process that feeds that culture. I, I've been known to say now that culture without process is chaos and process without culture is bureaucracy. But if you get the right mix, if, if you've got a process that supports a very intentional culture, one that we now talk about as focused on the business value of joy, you get a chance to do something that, quite frankly, I think most people dream about. I certainly dreamt about where every day you come to work and it, it just works. It, it, it's a process that feeds a culture and it's a culture that feeds a process. And so when you walk in our door, if you ever get a chance to come and visit, and I hope you do, you can feel the human energy in the room. You can sense the simple, repeatable, measurable, visible process because it's all visible on the walls. You you see an environment where people are literally working in pairs all day long, shoulder to shoulder. I'm looking at it right now while we're speaking. There are no walls, offices, cubes, or doors in the place uh, other than the ones required by law and convention. It's this palpable human energy where people are collaborating all day long and creating great work for the world. There is a program I did, whoa, probably in 2008, seven, with uh, Nick Sinukon. We called it Follow the Joy, which was really the, if you want to fa- find out what the secret sauce is in high-performance companies, just follow that joy. And you've obviously, you've written the book called Joy, Inc. You've got, you created the space, the climate where where people can have a great time and how would you describe joy yeah it's very easy for us actually and it interestingly it's externally focused so the first place we look is how do we serve others in the world and our definition of joy is based on the idea that with the right process and the right culture in place we can systematically delight the people we serve that is the end users of the software that's created in the room here, that the work of our hearts, our hands, and our minds be finished, get out to the world, delight the users, and work solidly every single day. So that's our definition of joy is how is our work being perceived by the people for whom we are making it? And everything here is focused on that external definition of joy. And so every process, every everything we have, and quite frankly, everything we don't have, the things we, we pushed aside, we said we don't need that because it doesn't add to that joy that we're trying to create in the world. And when I talk to people about this, I say the first thing you have to do is ask yourselves about your own organization, your team, who do we serve and what delight are we trying to create for them? And I believe in that instance, that's where joy comes from. Quite frankly, for all of us, we often trade it away for something else. We often find that there's some substitute. If we can't deliver that kind of joy, 
to the world and therefore to ourselves by serving the world, we start to trade it away for something else, an office, a title, a pay a grade, a, a stock option, uh, some, some escape outside of work. But when we can get that inside of our work, if we can get that inside of the teamwork that we're doing together, it's amazing what kind of hard work people are willing to do. And I want to be very careful here. At some point, we might get a chance to talk about the difference between joy and happiness because those are two very different emotions and two very different states of mind. We are not happy every minute of every day. I believe that would require medication, but we are, we are focused on this long-term joyful outcome for the we serve. I really appreciate the distinction you made because one of the questions that was lurking in the background of my mind was uh, what happens when you, because conflict is frequently, or difference of perspective at least, or diversity of opinion is usually the place where growth takes place. You can't, someone who's just listening to this would say, oh yeah, well you can't be joyful all the time, but that's not the same thing. How do you work with differences of perspective and differences of view? Yeah, in fact, it's critical. I, I don't think you can accomplish anything of value without conflict. Uh, and this is where, say, for example, we'll look at Patrick Lencioni's work where he says that an absence of trust leads to a fear of conflict. So as a leader in this organization, what I have to focus on first, and this is you know back to a question you asked earlier that I didn't really fully answer is, where does the change need to occur in me? Well, I, I will tell you, I had to unlearn some things I learned from managers that, who taught me how to motivate others with fear. And I had to set aside that, that managerial practice of trying to motivate people by creating artificial fear. You know, it's as simple as a boss going around saying, hey, Donna, how's it going? What you working on? Are you almost done? Hey, are you coming in this weekend? Hey, how's it going? You know, and all of those things create an artificial fear tends to motivate along extrinsic lines. But the real motivation that drives a team occurs on intrinsic motivation. I don't know, you know, whether uh, we want to take a hot topic of the day, like what happened at Wells Fargo. Clearly, there's a team that was motivated by extrinsic motivation, not by intrinsic motivation. Talk about Wells Fargo because it's a it's an issue that people might relate to. You better explain it first for those that are in Europe. But um, what, what happened there? Well, I don't. I only know what I read in the press, and the press says they just fired fifty three hundred people because those people were creating bogus accounts on behalf of their clients so that they could increase their performance numbers and therefore get a big bonus. And this goes right to the heart of what occurs in most organizations is that existing reward systems tend to pit individual performance against performance of the team or performance of the organization. And if my numbers don't match your numbers, if they get low enough, I might get cut. And that's an intrinsic, yeah, it's a destruction of intrinsic motivation. It's an extrinsic motivator that says, you better be in the top 90% or you're out of here. And once you fall into that trap, I think you can, you can almost guarantee you're going to produce bad results in your organization. It reminds me of a conversation I had with someone in Los Angeles, probably in 2007. And it was a millennial, she'd, or Gen Y, I guess it would have been at that time, brand new with Wells Fargo, been there for three months, was top of her salesperson in three months if regionally. I said, well, what, you know, what, what are you seeing? She says, they fire their low performance every month. They're not going to care about me. If I have a bad month, they're going to fire me. So I'm looking now 
And I thought, whoa, you know, here's here's that practice. So exactly what you just described on those bogus numbers. So in that case, the metrics are rewarding the wrong things and therefore bringing that out. But in her case, she's just looking at it from a transparent point of view and saying, yeah, they don't care. Why should I? Why should I hang around to a company that doesn't care? So what you've got going on here in Menlo Innovations feels like a lot of love, if I can put it that way. I think there is a lot of love. I, I think there's there is love for what we do. There is love for who we serve, and there is love for each other. And it can often be in that love for each other that's a tough love. It's a holding each other accountable to a higher standard, to high expectations. The way we work is two to a computer. We assign the pairs, we switch them every five days, and people are literally sharing work together. It's not you come and help me. We are sharing a keyboard and a mouse, and we're working on the same task at the same time together all day long. And paradoxically, that increases productivity and by some measures tenfold. Well, and it certainly increases connectivity because if you're rotating them all the time, you've got a constant fresh partner. I think it would be a blast. And the other thing is uh, it avoids one of the biggest problems in software, at least, and I think it affects organizations in so many different ways, the tower of knowledge problem. The one person on the team who knows everything about a certain subsection of a system and nobody else knows what they know, and eventually that that person becomes bitter and cankerous because they can't take vacations. When they do take vacations, they got to take work with them. If they get frustrated enough to want to leave, we give them a big pay raise, which helps for about two weeks. And then they get even more bitter because now they're priced out of the market because they're, they're almost trapped like a, you know, like a franchise player is trapped inside of a sports team. And, and we wonder sometimes why some of our highest paid players are the most bitter members of our team. Yeah, interesting point. You've got something on the website that I obviously read before we had this conversation called high-tech anthropology. What does that mean? Love the language. Yeah, thank you. When we started Memo, we said we wanted to end human suffering in the world as it relates to technology. We are an industry that is founded on a concept that is so pervasive, we accept it as true that the people we serve we call stupid users. And then we write dummies books for those poor people in order to understand our wonderfully designed technology. And our view is no. We, our job is not to make humans think like computers. Our job is to make computers work like the humans. And the only way to do that is to go study them in their native environment as an anthropologist would, to go out into the world, study them, watch them work, empathize with them, compassionately design a user experience, test that design against those very same kind of users to make sure they understand it, and if one day deliver software to them that doesn't require user manuals, help text, or training classes, and we have done this in so many different industries, we know we are systematic about producing that kind of delight in the world. What we want more than anything else is somebody who touches the work that happens in this room to come back to us, and they do, and say, I love this software. You made my life better because of the way you designed this. And most software doesn't work like that. Most des- most designed things don't work like that. Yeah, I totally agree. Two questions here. One's going to be outside-based, one's going to be inside-based. So let's go to the outside first, the, the scanning part of your world, because you're in a, the technology industry, which is probably one of the most 
disruptive forces on the planet at the moment. It's changing very quickly. How do you keep pace? How do you keep your scan going on with emerging surprises? First of all, nobody can keep up with this industry. I mean, we're we're not only disrupting the world, we're disrupting ourselves on a regular basis. And so there is no fundamental way to keep up as an individual anymore. And I think this goes to the heart of one of the things we realized in the earliest days of Menlo, that it is no longer about individuals keeping up. It's about a team keeping up. And so, you know, what do I do personally to keep up with what's going on in the world? I'm a voracious reader. I've always got my nose in some kind of book. I encourage reading by the team. We have books everywhere here. We built that learning organization that Peter saying he talked about just based on the way we work, two people working together, sharing their ideas, their knowledge with one another, switching the pairs every five days. And for me personally, one of the ways I keep up with the world is the fact that I've sort of been donated by the team to the world. I am out of the office a lot, much like uh, meeting your friend Nancy at uh, Agile for Executives in Boston. I now travel the world speaking about joy in the workplace, and that keeps me in contact and gives me a fresh perspective. I get invited into organizations to see what they're working on, to see what their challenges are, to compare them against the ones we still have to this day inside of Menlo and live and breathe inside of a community that is, quite frankly, for me, outside of Menlo itself. When I'm in the company, and I know we'll talk about that too, I think we have some interesting strategies there as well. What what I like about that is if you're out in the world, because there has to be some kind of memory, there has to be some constant feedback loops coming back into the company on what's going on out there. So whether it's you going out and keeping a scan and a sensory reading of what's happening, or radar, if you will, versus inside the company where there's teams that are doing that. What are the practices that that you feel are most effective for creating the glue for inside Menlo? Interestingly, that goes to the heart of my second title on my business card. The first one is CEO. The second one is Chief Storyteller. Storytelling is a fundamentally important component of sustaining and extending the culture we have here at Menlo. While I've been sitting here talking to you, a group of 25 people just came in from the outside world. It's a public tour. They came in from all over the region, perhaps all over the world. This is probably more of a local tour for this particular one. And they are sitting with our team for the next hour and a half to hear and ask about the Menlo stories, to hear the stories of our culture, of our practices, of our processes, of our wins and our losses. And so we've created a team of storytellers and by answering the questions of the people who come in our doors, we get smarter every day. Those people bring their stories in, just like Vistaprint did. They bring their own stories in. We learn from them. They go back. They try some things. They tell us what happened. We learn even more from them. And so this constant interaction of keeping our doors open to the world, to inviting people into our space, enriches us not only from that outside perspective, but also from the inside perspective. As more and more companies start moving toward what you're describing or start at least appreciating the value of it, there is an additional skill set required in someone like yourself. And and I call it consciousness or awareness, if you will. It's it's that very purposeful sense of of where you're putting your attention to, you know, where where the energy is going in the company and what you're focusing on. So in your role... Where do you find yourself, your, your focus going throughout the day? How do you know when things are going sideways? 
how do you know when the how do you actually sense the pulse of the company yeah well one simple construct there know that i'm i'm an early riser <laughs> so i get the electronic stuff of my day out of the way early i'm i'm close to a zero inbox guy i think this morning i fought my way down to 20 email messages in my inbox just leaves me at an uncomfortable state because I want it to be less than 10. But then my day is off to the races. And so the external pulse, for example, this morning I'm on a, I'm on a consortium, a positive organizational scholarship consortium through the University of Michigan where I'm interacting with other thoughtful leaders. And so there's a pulse there. Now I'm back here at Menlo and my table and that's exactly what my office is, is a table, a little five-foot table, just like everybody else, is out in the middle of the room. So I'm not in a corner suite. I'm not in a corner office. So I'm surrounded by the team. I sit out in the same room that everybody else is sitting in. And the way the space is formed, the way the tables are set up in our space, the team forms the space. So I actually sit where the team put me. And if the team decides that I'm not in the right place, if I'm not hearing the right things, if there's trouble in the space, the team will literally move my table to be closer to that space so that I can hear directly what's going on in that area of the company. We also have a rule here that I subscribe to as well. No earbuds. You can't wear earbuds while you're working. We want people to overhear the ideas of others. Well, if I'm not wearing earbuds, I'm hearing the conversations that are going on in the room. And the other aspect of Menlo is you can literally feel the energy when you're in the room. You can, it's, I'm not even sure I could perfectly describe maybe what a cognitive psychologist would tell me about it, but I can feel it inside of me. I can feel it in my heart. I can feel it in my gut. Are things going well at Menlo? Because I'm in the mix. I'm in the mix of the human emotion in the room. I think what that means is, is, I know what that means, is that you've become much more aware somatically, much more aware of your body and, and what it's telling you, because that is how we, how we take that information in. It's, it's uh, not mentally at all. Yeah, it feels a bit like what Gladwell talks about in Blink, where, you know, we, we have to learn to trust those instincts of how, does this, how do I feel in this situation and pay attention to those feelings. Exactly. I need to ask the question about decision-making because I always do. How does joy and the atmosphere you've created change the quality and the accuracy of the decisions that are being made, particularly with respect to creating value for the customer, but also with respect to how you handle conflict and differences of view? One of the biggest posters in our room is a poster that says, make mistakes faster. And this goes to the heart of that artificial fear that I was talking about earlier. In an environment where I say it's safe as a leader in this organization to make mistakes quickly, it's basically granting the team permission to be comfortable with the errors they're going to make. I mean, all of us would love to be perfect at work. The trouble is we're human. We know we're going to make mistakes. So let's simply start there. My co-founder, actually, James Goble, had a great saying right at the beginning of the company. He told the team, he says, guys, if anything goes wrong here, it's my fault. Blame me. Ted picked up on that right away when something went wrong, and he said, it's James's fault. Now let's work on the real problem. And so in that way, the team, right from the start, embraced this idea that we're going to make mistakes. Let's make them quickly. Let's expose them while they're still young, while we still have time and budget to work on them. One of the ways we do this is, is actually built right into our process in the way we interact with our customers. 
every fifth day, every five business days. So say every Tuesday for a project that you might bring to us, Tuesday at three o'clock, we're going to meet with you in what we call a show and tell. And you are actually going to sit at a keyboard and a mouse if you're local or demonstrate it over a, over a virtual connection if you're far away. And you're going to show us the work we did the previous five days. We're not going to show it to you. You're going to show it to us. You're, you're going to know what the plan is based on a planning event that's going to happen right after show and tell. You're going to know what the plan is for the next five days. But in those first hour or two, you're going to review the plan that we had set together the previous five days, and you're going to review it by actually touching the software that we built the previous five days while the team of people that worked on it are sitting there watching you do it. And in reversing these roles of traditional show and tell, where normally we would show you and we, I might, we might carefully guide ourselves around certain obstacles, hidden obstacles that can happen in software, you're right there at the keyboard and mouse, and you're looking what we're doing. And you might look and go, oh, I'm sorry, is that what you thought I meant? That's not what I meant at all. And our answer is awesome. We worked on that story card for two hours, and less than five days later, we found out we got it wrong. That's great. What did you actually mean? And so we don't necessarily worry about accuracy of decision-making in the moment. We worry about how does the decision we made less than five days ago line up with what you were actually expecting different than perhaps what we perceived you were expecting based on the decision you made five days before. By creating this simple structure of repeating this every five days with you, we get to a better outcome faster because we're constantly checking in and there's never a worry that we put so much sunk cost into this thing that everybody's like, well, it'll be fine. I guess we can learn to live with it. No, it's, it, it's, it's less than a week's worth of work. And of course we didn't get it all wrong. Some things we actually got right. Some things we might've gotten so right that you look at it and go, yep, that's exactly what I wanted. But now that I see it, I realize it's not what I need. Because that's classic in software. Software is theoretical until you can actually touch it. And so we make it touchable as quickly as possible so that now we can begin to reflect on what do you really mean? What do you really need? And I think that's the way we get to better decision-making along the way. Yeah, absolutely, because that's a process. What you just described is the process of clearing out assumptions and gaining greater clarity on the shared expectation, you know, matching up. What, what the vision is or the picture is in, in the client's mind with, with what's being produced. Yep, software is all theoretical until you can actually touch it. Yeah, that's very well said. What uh, suggestions would you have for any company that is looking at changing over from a fear-based approach to a joy-based environment? You know, what I tell people is that you, you need to decide. Do you want an intentional culture? And I will even go so far as saying intentionally joyful culture or a default culture where things just happen the way they happen. And that's a big decision. Uh, that's a commitment because now you're going to have to start looking at everything you do and saying, are the processes we use in alignment with the cultural intention we've chosen? And I think that that vision that you have has to be inspiring. It has to be personal. You can, I don't think you can copy another I don't think you can come here at Menlo and say, we're just going to make it like Menlo. I think that's wrong-minded. You know, we have the Menlo way. It works for Menlo. Toyota has the Toyota way. It works for them. I think, you know, a Vistaprint comes here. They, they need to work on the Vistaprint way. Something that they believe in that works for them. 
I think if you try to copy someone else's culture, you end up with uh, what Richard Feynman called cargo cult science, where you're just copying the artifacts, you're making it look the same, and yet it's not having the same results. I think you need to examine your, your fundamental beliefs about people, about motivating people, and so on. I think you have to become a student again. You have to begin reading. You, you, have, to, you have to realize that the first place that needs to change is you. You know, a lot of times I get people here and I can see the thought bubbles over their head. They're like, you go, Rich. You tell those people they need to change. I'm like, uh-uh. First, first person needed to change in this system was me. I needed to become a different kind of leader. I needed to learn to pump out the fear, to filter out ambiguity, to create a safe environment. If, it, if people feel safe when they're at work, they will begin to trust one another. And then you might get collaboration and ultimately teamwork. And then you get what I think every company on the planet's looking for, creativity, innovation, invention, and imagination. Brilliantly said. Rich, where should people go for more information or to book a workshop or, or a tour? Yeah, if you go to our website, you can hit, click on the home page that says Experience Memo by Visiting. We'd love to have you here. Uh, as I say, we host about 4,000 people a year through our doors. You can come and see it. It's a very rare opportunity to take a look at a living, breathing culture at work. We even have opportunities where you can join our team, like plug right in. We've done this recently where people came there like, you know what, it's neat to see it. Could I sit down at a computer with somebody and actually experience it for a few hours? And we pulled off that experiment experiment quite successfully as well. So there's lots of ways to directly experience it. If you can't get here, there's always the book. Uh, it's about a 300-page read on the cultural intentions that we have as well as the practices that feed those intentions. Rich, thanks very much for being on the program. I really appreciate it. Now I'm looking forward to hearing uh, Vistaprint's uh, perspective. Anything you want to add? I will simply say the joy is back for me. I was that guy, that disengaged guy that was taking the longest possible drives to work, and I didn't want to be there anymore. And for the last 17 years, I've gotten to the joy that I had always thought I could. So I will simply encourage your listeners to realize that it is possible and uh, it can happen in just about any environment. It is a choice you get to make, and it's not an easy choice. It's simple, but simple is almost never easy. No, that's true. I mean, you're really calling out a higher level of responsibility in yourself for everything you experience. So I love that because I I started working on a book called Take Your Whole Self to Work, and, and this is very much about, about that, that uh, commitment. You bet. My name is Donna Jones. I work with your teams internally to put together a transformational process that is fun faster because it works with the principles of working with a complex adaptive system and also, of course, transforms decision-making into the realm of working with complexity and uncertainty with far greater ease. Me on from InsightToAction.com or through LinkedIn.